Hi, everyone. Welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. The Biden administration is now allowing some asylum seekers to wait for their court cases here in the United States. We'll talk to Kate Morrissey about that. Plus, cartoonist Steve Breen talks about his latest GIF and how some constructive criticism improved his work this week for the better. First, the news. The COVID-19 superstation near Petco Park will close again on Saturday due to a severe shortage of doses. UC San Diego Health operates the superstation, and CEO Patty Maysent said the site will reopen on Wednesday at the earliest. Maysent says the plan is to shift all appointments back by four days, but the actual delay could be longer. It will be the third closure for the superstation, which has immunized more than 119,000 San Diegans. A new task force from the Biden administration will work on reunifying migrant families who were separated at the border under Trump-era policies. Its mission is to identify all children separated by a zero-tolerance policy for those crossing the border illegally and to enable reunifications. Thousands of families have already been reunited or given the option to reunite under the litigation, which began in 2018 in San Diego federal court. The effort is ongoing to locate the parents of the remaining 499 children. Two men accused of stealing millions of dollars from public schools pleaded guilty Friday to felony conspiracy charges. Sean McManus and Jason Schrock are creators of the now-defunct A3 Charter School Network, each admitted in San Diego Superior Court to one count of conspiracy to commit theft of public funds. McManus also pleaded guilty to another count of conspiracy to commit theft of public funds, while Schrock pleaded guilty to conflict of interest. As a part of their plea agreement, they will return more than $210 million in cash, 13 houses, and shares in third-party companies. More than two years after the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico program began, a small group of asylum seekers have been allowed into the United States to await their court cases. Under the Trump administration, more than 70,000 asylum seekers were returned to Mexico. Under the Biden administration, about 26,000 people with active immigration cases in the United States are now eligible to enter the country. The U.S. processed the first 25 applicants last Friday at the San Ysidro Port of Entry, and asylum seekers have once again begun to gather at the border. Kate Morrissey is the UT's immigration reporter. Kate, you wrote about asylum seekers gathering in Tijuana this week. Who is out there and what does the scene look like? So there's a little over 50 tents um, outside of the western part of the port of entry that have been um, set up, donated for the asylum seekers who were sleeping on the ground there. Um, They are from, you know, various places and situations. Um, A lot of them have been in Tijuana for some time. They're not new arrivals to Tijuana, but they've, in in the course of their experiences there, either run out of of where, you know, money for where they were living or um, felt really unsafe in where they were living in Tijuana. And so when this announcement came that some processing was going to start happening again at the border, they felt that the best thing for them to do was to come and sleep outside the port of entry in the hopes that that might um, help them get in more quickly to get out of the situation that they're in in Tijuana. So 25 people were allowed to enter last Friday. Um, 26,000 people are eligible, but do we know how many will actually be allowed in? 
We don't. Um, people are able to sign up through this website through um, the UN Refugee Agency and um, their staff are doing the sort of initial interviewing and checking to see, you know, does this person still have an active immigration court case in the United States and, um, and then setting up for them to be tested for COVID. And if they test negative for COVID, then they're able to be um, brought across. And so that's happening in um, starting in very small groups and they're hoping to, to ramp up that effort to uh, the number I've heard is maybe 300 people a day coming in um, the port of entry here in, in San Ysidro. Um, and then there's two other ports of entry along the border where that will happen as well. Um, but we don't know how many of those 26,000 are going to register. Um, and we don't know how many are going to get approved to come across or exactly how long that's going to take. And then we don't know what's going to happen to the other, uh, you know, more than 40,000 people for sure who were at one point part of that program and, and do not have active cases at this point. And many of them are still, you know, outside of the United States. Um, and then there's all of the asylum seekers who were not in that program, but are still in Mexico because of another Trump policy or another set of Trump policies. Um, and so no plan has been put forth for them yet either. So there are, while there, there is a, a possibility for this, this one specific group of people to start being processed, there's a lot more people whose, whose futures are still very up in the air and in, in limbo. Do you know what happens when they do actually cross? So you said they're tested for COVID. Where are they housed? How long are they having to wait to have their cases heard? So once they cross, um, there are there's a, a nonprofit um, group that is well, sort of a, a collective of nonprofit groups that are working together um, to facilitate some of this. And so um, Jewish Family Service has has for a long time operated. Um, a shelter for asylum-seeking families in San Diego. And so um, they are doing a lot of the coordinating once people cross into San Diego. Um, they coordinate with the county public health so that so people are further quarantined. Um, once they come this side, they go to a quarantine hotel. Um, and then Jewish Family Service figures out where you know each individual or each family um, intended to go in the United States, where their family or friends are who are already here, um, who are going to take care of them while they wait for their cases. And so they, they facilitate that communication and, and travel plans and, you know, take the folks to the airport or to the bus station and make sure they get on, you know, the right plane. And, and um, then folks are able to wait, um, wait with their, their families or their friends um, or their sponsors, who, whomever they might be. Um, all across the United States while they wait for their cases. And, and that wait really depends on where they're going. Um, because each immigration court has its own sort of sizable backlog. And so once their case transfers from uh, theoretically, you know, the San Diego docket where it was being housed for, for this program, it'll be transferred to wherever in the country they end up going. Um, and so that, that could push out their case a lot longer, but at the same time, they'll also at least be in a place where they hopefully feel a little bit safer. So... So the Biden administration has been allowing people to come over, but at the same time, they've said, quote, this is not the time to come. So are they accepting new cases or is this just for people with, you know, existing open cases? They are not accepting new cases as far as we know. Um, they have been very 
uh, firm in emphasizing that message that they do not want other people outside of the folks in this program who have active cases to, to come at this time. Um, and so, you know, like I was saying with the, with the camp outside of the port of entry, many of the folks who are camping out there are not enrolled in um, this Remain in Mexico program. They were in earlier stages of their um, asylum processing or, you know, hadn't even yet been allowed to request asylum because of the, the other Trump policies that were in place, um, such as metering, which limited how many people a port of entry would process for asylum each day and created this backlog of, I think, 10 or 11,000 people waiting in Tijuana just to, to come through the port of entry and, and start the process. And then after the pandemic started, um, they, they shut that down completely. They didn't take any asylum seekers at the port of entry to, to start the process. And anyone who um, you know, climbed over, over the fence was immediately expelled back under this other policy um, through a CDC order. And that's still in place. So if somebody you know, is like, I'm really desperate, I'm going to come across, um, they could get immediately expelled back to Mexico or they could get immediately expelled back to their country of origin. Um, and so we've heard a lot, particularly from organizers in the Haitian community about um, Haitians who have crossed from Tijuana and then either been returned to Tijuana or been returned to Haiti. You've been out there talking to asylum seekers. What stories are they telling you about why they're here? Oh, everyone has their own sort of complicated and, and very sad and, and often traumatic story of, of how they've ended up in these situations. Um, I remember speaking with a Honduran family um, earlier this week who had a small business and the business was um, extorted by um, gangs and they didn't feel like they had any recourse because the police are collaborating with the gangs and and the corruption in the country goes to the highest offices so if you've been paying attention to the news about Honduras um, the president's brother has already been sentenced for narco trafficking in the United like in the United States sentenced um, and now US prosecutors are looking into the current president of Honduras himself um, and and announcing information about those investigations and so when you have corruption like that that goes as far as like you know the leader of the country and then and then you know is filtered all through there people who are in these situations with with you know death threats and, and pressure being put on them to pay money that they don't have or or they'll be killed or their child will be killed um, they don't feel like they have a way to do anything but leave and so that's you know the story of, of one family that I met I met a woman who had fled um, very serious domestic violence, um, which is also a big issue down there. Um, you know, femicide and and um, and and violence against women in general is 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 often not taken seriously by law enforcement there, or especially you know if the if the abusive person is somehow connected to one of these organizations that have so much power or connected to these rings of corruption. Um, the woman is not is not going to have any recourse, and so um, she had fled with her children to to save her life and save their lives. 
Is the mood at the border um, any different now that there's a new administration in place? It is and it isn't. I think there's more hope in a way now that something could change for the better. Um, when we were down there, there were people singing corridos to Biden. Um, and, you know, we, I, I don't remember that as much previously. Um, but there's still a lot of desperation and there's still a lot of people who are stuck in something that they don't seem to have a way out of. And so that very much has not changed. So the Biden administration has promised to undo many of the border policies created under former President Donald Trump. Uh, this is one of them, but what other changes are we seeing? So we've seen this just generally different tone on immigration. Um, we've seen the introduction now of, of legislation that the White House is, is pushing for on immigration more, more generally that would look at, um, you know, undocumented folks inside the United States and, and something that might be done to, to help them um, regulate their status. Um, but as far as, as far as the border goes, it's, it's definitely like bit by bit that we're seeing these changes. Um, I think there's a lot of fear in the administration that if they do too much too quickly, it will um, either cause more people to decide to come or create some kind of image of people coming that would be bad publicity for what they're trying to do. Um, and so I think they're trying to walk this line that's still kind of based in the um, deterrence mindset that our, our country has had for decades when it comes to immigration at the border, this idea that that our policies and, and whatever we're doing here needs to keep people from coming. Um, and so I see, you know, in, in the language from the administration, like we do, we do see some continuation of that, even as they, you know, try to end MPP and, and try to, or end the Remain in Mexico program, sorry for the jargon, um, and, and try to change some of these things. So, um, I think a lot of us who are, you know, very deep in, in covering these policies are still kind of waiting to see how much actual change is coming and what that's going to look like and how long it's going to take. And finally, I wanted to ask you about deportations. I've been hearing a lot of complaints about this. You know, Biden had said he would not deport anybody within his first 100 days, and that hasn't been the case. He says there is now a moratorium. So where does that stand? The moratorium has has had some uh, legal challenges. There was a judge in Texas who um, said that they could not put the moratorium in place because the Trump administration had signed something with the state of Texas saying that the state of Texas would have some say before federal policy around immigration changed. Um, sort of in its you know final final moments in in office, uh, the Trump administration did that, and so. Um, after the deportation moratorium was announced, the state of Texas sued and said, you can't do this because we have this agreement. Um, and so a judge in Texas upheld, um, or a judge in Texas sided with the state of Texas is maybe the better way to put it. Um, and so we've seen deportations continue. Um, and we have seen a lot of criticism 
over that, and it's it's a little bit complex, I think, because you have this order from the judge saying you can't put a moratorium on deportations, but there is an immense amount of discretion when it comes to who gets deported and when and how and and the choices that you that you make with that. And so, you know, particularly with um, some of these flights to say Cameroon, where um, people are fleeing, very intense um, human rights abuses and and um, attacks on you know sort of specific specific ethnic groups um, there. Um, you've seen a lot of criticism coming up that flights like to countries like that are continuing, or that there have been you know an increase in deportation flights to Haiti, for example. There's a um, there's a group that actually tracks deportation flights. They monitor when they leave and how they go. Um, and so we've been getting a lot of information from them about, you know, how many flights and how many, you know, which countries and, um, and so, you know, it's not really clear to me, at least, even where would the line be of following the judge's order versus doing more deporting than you have to do. Um, that's still kind of confusing, to be honest. Well, thank you for that. We'll check in with you um, when we know more. Kate Morrissey is our immigration reporter. Kate, thank you so much. Thank you. Now let's turn to opinion. Steve Breen is our editorial cartoonist, and he comes up with a handful of drawings each week to comment on the news. This week, he made a gif to stand in solidarity with Asians as they face hate crimes in California and elsewhere. It was a really good idea, but it was made better by honest conversations among our staff. I talked to Steve about that. Steve, tell me about the gif you made this week. Why was it an important topic to you? Well, I'm always looking for topics that are a little different. And um, this was something that had been percolating in the news for the past couple of weeks with these terrible attacks. And, um, you know, hate crimes are bad no matter, you know, who the victim is. And uh, I wanted to address it. So I knew it was going to be a little challenging because it's, it's a sensitive issue. Uh, but I, I wanted to try doing something a little different. So that's what kind of prompted this. And so tell me about your initial idea that you came up with. The initial idea had a young Asian girl seeing the word hate written on a wall. And she then looks distressed. She takes some paint and she paints a butterfly over the word hate. And the word hate was kind of written like, like a butterfly, but you're not supposed to see that at first. Um, so yeah, that's the reveal is that she's painted it over with, with, a, with a butterfly. So I showed it to the group uh, at the Union Tribune. We have a, a diversity uh, Slack channel and someone made the point that it shouldn't be this young, little girl's job to uh, fight the hate by herself or, you know, um, it should be kind of, uh, it should be everyone's job to, to stand up against racism and say that it's wrong. And um, at first I thought, oh shoot, I'm gonna have to redraw, redo this whole thing or maybe I'll just have to get rid of it and do a whole other topic, you know? But uh, another employee, another colleague, um, sent me or actually called me 
And she suggested that I show multiple people painting over the, uh, the word hate uh, and turning it into a butterfly. And um, that seemed like something I could do if I only had to draw hands. Because keep in mind, you know, <laughs> daily deadlines, people, whenever you have to draw people in cartoons or illustrations, it takes forever. Uh, you know, human figures. But if you, if you only have to draw hands, it's much easier. So um, I thought that that was a, a really easy workable solution. And I, I took a bunch of panels out and added a bunch of panels and we were able to make it work. Yeah, I think it came out really great. Um, you know, I, I didn't see that issue at first, although I, I do, I, I agree, right, that it, it was made stronger. Yeah. And after seeing it, um, it is more powerful. It's actually like a very moving image. Um, yeah. we, we had one person online, um, and we retweeted this uh, criticism, say, we shouldn't paint over it, we shouldn't cover it. Um, and that's, that's fine. That's, you know, a perspective to have. But I didn't really see it that way. Like, I saw it as you know, hence the butterfly sort of transforming this problem with the help of your friends, right? And with the help of like the broader community. Was, yeah. that, was that what you were thinking? Yeah, sure, sure. Just taking a negative and collectively making it positive, mm -hmm. uh, you know? Uh, I, guess that, I guess that person thinks that we should have maybe showed scrub brushes and instead of covering over mm. it, we should have maybe erased it and with soap and water and gotten rid of it. I guess that would have been another approach to get to the same message. Um, it's very it's very sensitive and it's very, very, very fraught. That the, whenever you deal with uh, cartoons or illustrations on race, uh, it's easy to get tripped up and it's easy to, um, to unintentionally offend or, or needlessly offend, or, you know? So that's why it's always good to, to bounce it off other people and take, you know, and, and get and get feedback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I wanted to talk about this today. Just the process. Like you're not just creating these and having nobody look at them. I mean, we're sending them to the newsroom. We're sending them to the community advisory board, and uh, it is a good process. You know, I think they they you always start with a great idea, but you know they come out vetted and they come out really strong. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. You can find the stories we discussed here at sandiegouniontribune.com. I'm Christy Totten, and we'll be back Monday.